A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing, what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Well, this morning's text, is, as Crystal just read to us, is a, uh, it's a beautiful story. It's one that shows to us the heart of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus is on full display here. Uh, it's one of the, probably one of the most pitiable people in the Bible that Jesus comes and shows this great love and compassion to. Uh, and it is the example of Jesus that we see here in these verses that's actually been the impetus for a lot of Christian ministry and, and social work throughout the ages that takes place among some of the most dire peoples, the most dire situations across the globe. And, and honest, honestly, if we look at church history, one of the most compelling stories of the early church is that in the midst of the Roman Empire, it was the church that was best known for caring for people like this man. People who were ostracized, alienated, and honestly left to die by their own family members, and yet the church came alongside them and cared for them, following the example of Jesus here in this text. And again, the, the example of Jesus is a powerful one. Uh, it's one that each of us should consider carefully when we think about what it means for us to be the hands, of feet, hands and feet of Jesus in this world, including for the outcasts like this leprous man here. But we would be wrong for us to look at this text and just conclude that Jesus is only an example for us. That's all Mark wants for us, is to look at Jesus in this text and say, okay, that's how I'm supposed to live. While that may be true, that's not what Mark is primarily trying to communicate to us. Last week, we looked at a large chunk of chapter 1. We looked at about 20 verses that covered about the first 30 hours of Jesus' public ministry starting in Capernaum. And what we saw is that at the beginning of those 30 hours, Jesus began as a relatively unknown quantity. Many people didn't know who he was, and yet by the end of that time, he is basically fawned over by every single person in Capernaum, and that spreads quickly throughout all of Galilee. Remember what we read last week, what we saw last week, that Jesus' authority is clearly on display in the midst of his teaching. It's clearly on display as he confronts evil incarnate. It's clearly on display when Jesus is able to heal Simon's mother-in-law and so many others. And it was this authority coupled with this sacrificial compassion that we see from Jesus here that, that leads to Jesus' popularity spreading like wildfire throughout the region of, of Galilee. And perhaps surprisingly to us is that Jesus didn't want anything to do with it. Jesus wanted none of this popularity. Jesus had come to Galilee with a specific mission. And that mission was to proclaim that God's kingdom was coming. To warn people to repent because the, the day of the Lord was, was close at hand. To, to charge people to come to him in faith. Because the reality is, is that Jesus doesn't come just to proclaim the kingdom. He's actually the one who comes to usher in the kingdom of God through his own death and resurrection. 
And last week at the end of our text, uh, verses 38 and 39, Jesus tells us clearly what his purpose is for coming to earth. In the face of all this popularity about how Jesus is this incredible healer, he says this, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And then verse 39 it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. That verse, verse 39, encapsulates the next several weeks of Jesus' ministry, maybe even the next several months of Jesus' ministry as he's working, as he's going throughout Galilee. He's, he's preaching, he's pleading with people to, to enter into the kingdom of God through faith and through repentance. And he goes to countless towns, he, he has countless sermons, countless healings, countless exorcisms, yes, and, and yet almost none of those healings Virtually none of those exorcisms, of the teaching, of the sermons that Jesus gave during this time are recorded. Except for this one. This one, verses 40 through 45, takes place in what is summed up in verse 39. As, as Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee, there's this one town where he enters, and there's this leper there. And so we might ask, well, why is it that Mark includes this? Why is it that Mark, as he's, he's really brief throughout the, the gospel, when he has countless options of, of healing to choose from, why is it that Mark chooses this one? Mark isn't exactly someone who wastes words or space, after all. And so it would not at all be wrong for us to conclude that Mark has something else in mind than just recording this because it is a neat story. Mark is trying to tell us something. So he's trying to tell us something that's different than the fact that we've already seen Jesus heal. We've already seen Jesus be authoritative in teaching and, and casting out evil spirits. And so as we approach this text, we have to ask, well, what is the specific thing that Mark wants for us to know this morning? The reality is there is something specific that, that we can learn from this text. Again, it, it highlights the power of Jesus to heal. It highlights Jesus' authority, but it doesn't stop there. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a look at these verses, unpack these verses, and see at least four specific truths as we look at this that tell us about Jesus and they tell us about the kingdom that he brings. All right, so let's, let's take a look at those things. Uh, as we read just a few moments ago this morning, uh, its text focuses on the healing of this leper, and it's at some point during this rising popularity of Jesus while he is in Galilee. And to understand the, the weight of, of what has taken place, I think it's helpful for us to take a few moments and just to explore this concept of leprosy, specifically uh, the, the idea of leprosy and what it meant there in the first century in Israel. Now, when we uh, think of leprosy, oftentimes we think of uh, one specific thing. Uh, the Bible actually uses this word leprosy to refer to a, a very generic, broad category that can refer to, to very minor things all the way up to very major things, it, it, all of them focusing on different types of afflictions or diseases that are uh, centered around the skin. Again, some of these are minor, things like ringworm or some uh, a bad form of eczema would fall under the category of leprosy in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. So things that are minor, things that will even just take care of themselves over time or, or that, that natural remedies can take care of would be considered leprosy. And yet also at other times it was used to refer to things that were extremely severe. When we think of leprosy the, uh, today, oftentimes we think of what is also called as Hansen's disease. 
uh, th- this is also something that would have been known at that day and age as well. And so you have this, this massive category when the Bible refers to leprosy from things that are, that are insignificant and really not much more than an inconvenience all the way up to things that are life-threatening. And when we look at the Bible, as we look at the Old Testament, and then when it's mentioned in the New Testament, the Bible virtually never differentiates between these different types of leprosy. The focus instead is on one's ritual purity before God. The, the, the content or what, what's happening to you in your skin is not the, the important thing. The important thing is that all of these blemishes, they make you ritually unclean before God. And therefore, you're not able to participate in worshiping God amongst other people. In fact, you're not actually able to live among other people in the congregation of God. And while our text here doesn't tell us what kind of leprosy this man has, it doesn't specify, well, this is a severe form or this is a, a minor form. I think that based off of the context of these verses and the fact that Mark includes it in the first place, this is not exactly just something that's minor. This is something that has been afflicting this man for a, for a long time. This is a severe issue that is, is facing this man by the fact that he just comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus. He falls face down before him, shows that this is incurable. This is something that he needs Jesus to intervene for him. And then there's this parallel text, Luke chapter 5, tells us the exact same story. It just highlights a couple of different things. In Luke, he, he tells us that this was not just your average form of leprosy. It says this in Luke 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when, Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There we see from Luke, the physician, that this is a man who is full of leprosy. This is a problem that has been afflicting him for many years. It is something that has covered his entire body. This is a severe form of leprosy. It is something that is painful. It is slow acting. It's covering his entire body with lesions and sores. Maybe his limbs have begun to wither away and and more and more. And and I'm sure you have seen pictures of leprosy, uh, the more severe forms of it. Uh, If not, you have your phone. You can Google it. I'm a little squeamish, so I'm not going to put things up on the uh, the, uh, screens for you to look at. But this is a severe problem that was facing this man. And yet, the text does not primarily focus on his physical suffering. The text instead focuses on his isolation. This text is very clear that the primary issue facing this man is not a need for physical healing. It's the fact that he has been separated and isolated from God's presence. He's been separated and isolated from the community where he can worship God. He is an outcast. If we look at the the book of Leviticus, Leviticus gives us a number of purity codes that tells us how to deal with certain uh, conditions that cause us to be ritually clean or unclean, and and it tells us what was required for the person who had leprosy. Whatever kind of leprosy it was, whether it was uh, minor or severe, it tells us this in Leviticus 13. The The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. 
Here we see that it was the leper's responsibility to to mark their appearance, to to wear clothes that were disheveled, to, to wear their hair in such a way that it was clear to others that they needed to avoid them, that they were unclean, that they were lepers. And for many people, this was nothing more than just a a slight inconvenience and and honestly a a large inconvenience if you have to spend a week or two not living in your home but living camping outside of the city walls uh, while anyone comes up to you to shout out, unclean, unclean. So so there's that, but but in in the large scale of things, it's just an inconvenience. And then you you bring that up to, to people like this man who for years have had to live by themselves in isolation, no one associating with them. Every single time a person comes up to them having to shout out, unclean, unclean, in other words, stay away, you can't come near me. This is a man who finds himself in a very, very sad place. In fact, and uh, according to the purity laws, if you were to even touch a person who had leprosy, then you would be considered unclean yourself. And as Jewish tradition over the years added more and more uh, rules and stipulations to what is originally written in the Old Testament, it was actually concluded that if you were anywhere within 150 paces of a leper and you were standing downwind of them, then you would actually catch their uncleanness. Good news is, if you were standing upwind of them, you can get within 50 paces of them. It's a, it's a very serious thing that people would, would not at all want to associate with this man. Leprosy, in fact, in ancient Judaism became uh, a very uh, important issue uh, in the eyes of, of practicing Jews uh, to the point where they, they talk about it all the time, and it covers a disproportionate amount of ancient literature focusing on being clean and unclean. They were seriously concerned with those who were leprous or had these sorts of skin uh, diseases or afflictions. If we look at the Old Testament, we actually see that there are only two times in all of the Old Testament where a leper is healed. And in both of those times, they have a severe form of leprosy, and God has to intervene to fix the problem. The first one is in Numbers chapter 12. Moses' sister, uh, Miriam, has actually been caught guilty of, of grumbling against Moses. She's jealous of Moses, wants to, to be the one who's in charge, and, and same with Aaron. And she is struck with leprosy, and she has leprosy for a week or two and, until God takes it away. And the second one is Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman is the the leader of the army uh, of Syria, and he is brought to Israel uh, on the word of this slave girl uh, because there is this belief that God can heal him. And sure enough, God is the one who heals them. So because of these two different accounts that are in the Old Testament, people over the course of hundreds of years began to associate this idea of leprosy And the severe forms of leprosy, the only way it could be healed is if God intervenes. The only one who can heal a leper is God himself. A regular miracle worker, whatever that means, they could not heal someone of leprosy. What's more, uh, there became became this uh, this sense, because of the Old Testament, because of of the wicked pagan Naaman, uh, and because of Miriam, and and she, uh, you know, was is caught, she's given leprosy by God because of of her um, speaking out against her brother Moses, there becomes this sense uh, in Jewish culture that if you have leprosy, it is the direct result of your own wickedness. 
It is God judging you for your sin. And so they're already, these lepers are already seen as outcasts. And then you couple that with this sense that anyone who has leprosy deserves it. As being judged by God, they are, they're reaping what they sow because of their rebellion, because of their speaking out against God, because of their sin. And all of that comes, is supposed to come to mind when we read at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, verse 40, this leper comes to Jesus. Here is a man who has suffered for years. Here is a man who has this disease that is likely destroying his flesh. It covers his entire body. He's, he's possibly missing limbs. And what's more, he, here's a man who hasn't known the touch of another person for however long he's had the disease. If he's married, if he has kids, his, his wife and his kids cannot talk with him beyond shouting from a large distance. They, they will not associate with him. They, they will not even shake his hands. This is a man who is an outcast, someone who is not able to participate in worshiping God the way that God has, has prescribed it in the Old Testament. This is a man who has no friends, who is seen by the majority of society as this wicked man who is getting what's coming to him. But now this man, he, he hears, uh, word is beginning to spread throughout Galilee that there's this miracle worker, this man named Jesus, and he's, he's traveling through the, the towns and he's, he's healing people. He's, he's casting out demons and he's going from town to town to town in Galilee. And I'm sure that he begins to hope and pray Maybe this Jesus will come to, to my town. Maybe this Jesus will, will come and, and, and I can be healed. To this point, nothing has been too hard for this miracle worker, for this Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, he hasn't healed a leper yet, but, but no one has been uh, turned away from Jesus. And at last, Jesus shows up in his town. And this man, I imagine he's watching Jesus from a distance as he's, as he's healing all of these different people, as he's teaching all of these people. And eventually, he builds up the confidence, and he goes to Jesus. He heads to him, and that's where our text begins this morning. Take a look again at verses 40 and 41. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. It's here that we see our first truth. It's this. Jesus responds to the leper's faith with unheard of compassion. Jesus responds to the leper's faith with unheard of compassion. Now make no mistake, it took faith for the leper to approach Jesus, to go to Jesus. It takes faith for him to walk toward the crowd, not away from the crowd, with the hope that Jesus is going to heal him. It takes faith for him to speak up. It takes faith for him to fall on his face. It takes faith for him to ignore the crowds, gr gasping in horror, grumbling about this man who is approaching Jesus, this wicked man, approaching this godly teacher. It's, of course, no wonder why this man addresses Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean. He has seen enough, he's observed Jesus, he's heard enough about Jesus that he is convinced that Jesus has the power, Jesus has the authority to heal him. But what the man is not so sure about is how Jesus will respond to him. If Jesus will look at this man in the exact same way that the crowds look at him, if Jesus will have the same attitude as everyone else, will he refuse to even let this man into his presence? 
Will Jesus turn this man away, this godly man, Jesus, will he turn this man away and say, you know what? You deserve it. You have been wicked, and this is your due from God. And so it takes faith for this man to approach God, uh, to Jesus, and, and he does so with, with humility by saying, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds, and he, and he responds with this amazing compassion to him. That's what this phrase, moved with pity, as we read in our text this morning, means. It's this idea of, of compassion. Some of you may actually have that in your translation. It may say that he's been filled with compassion. A few of you may actually have translations that say something about Jesus being indignant, and, and we'll, we'll cover that here in a, in a few moments. But this idea of compassion and pity is a very visceral word. It's, it's something that, that moves Jesus deep down in his core, that he is wrenched and forced into action. And I think one of the best examples of this comes from the very, very, very theological movie, Hitch, starring Will Smith. If you've seen Hitch, it's a romantic comedy. At the end of the, the movie, Will Smith, is he's talking with the love interest uh, that, uh, from the movie, and, and he's so nervous to tell her how he feels that he actually forces her to shut the door so he can talk to her through the little peephole. In, in the, um, and it's just... It, it's really funny because Will Smith, it just, it's, made, it's made far funnier by how awkward Will Smith looks in this bubble thing. And he starts talking about how it, there's, this, there's this sense deep down within him where, where he, he just is wrenched by his gut. Deep down inside of him, he, he, he wants to be miserable. And you're like, what? You want to be miserable? You want to be miserable. And he's talking about this, this idea of love. And he says, I want to be miserable if, if that makes me happy. And it's never a good idea if you're telling a girl how, to, how you, she makes you feel to say, you make me feel miserable. I want to be miserable. I want to be with you. It's this odd moment, this comical moment, and yet it reveals so often this sense deep down within us that our, that our very inner being is wrenched into action. That there's this pain within each and every one of us as we express love to another person. Perhaps you've experienced a similar form of this compassion, this, this gut-wrenching desire to do something, this gut-wrenching desire to intervene. If you, you've seen hurt or pain on the face of a child or someone who's experienced great loss and you can't help but act, it's almost as if you're compelled to do something. You can't, you can't not do something. You don't have a choice in the matter. It's a very earthy word. It's a, it's a human word. And here is Jesus. He is he's not under, he's being forced into action by what he experiences when he sees this outcast, when he sees this man who is separated and isolated from God. He sees this pain. He sees this isolation, and he is moved into action. But Jesus' compassion doesn't just lead him to heal this man. The text tells us that before Jesus says anything, before Jesus makes a pronouncement of, of be healed or anything like that, what does he do? The text tells us he reaches out and he touches the man. He reaches out and he touches the man. This is not just an accidental graze. This is not just a millisecond touch. This is uh, if you look at the Greek, it's an act of grasping him, of grabbing onto him and not letting him go. It's a sign of his love. It's a sign of his compassion. It is a sign that this man needs something more than just being healed. He needs community. 
He needs relationship. He needs to feel like he belongs. This great barrier that separates him from the people of God and God himself needs to be broken down. He needs to be looked at like he's a human again. And so Jesus reaches out and he touches this man. And don't underestimate the gift of physical touch. It is a, it is a vital, vital gift that we can give to other people. It's the reason why my two-month-old son uh, can fall asleep in my arms or my wife's arms and can sleep for hours on end. And at the moment you put him down, what does he do? Well, of course, he wakes up and you have to get back up with him again. It is the reason why so many people feel isolated once their spouse dies or once they are divorced because there's this need for physical touch, a need to feel loved. And this man has gone without it for years, and Jesus knows exactly what he needs, and so he reaches out and he touches him first. Indeed, we see this at the beginning of the, God, uh, the Bible. If you look in Genesis, what does Genesis tell us when uh, God looks at Adam, and Adam is the only one who's created, and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And again, that's primarily referring to marriage, but it also is this truth, this idea that God has not created us to live in isolation. God has not created us to be outcasts, that we are meant to live with others. And so Jesus expresses this astounding compassion to this man, this unheard of compassion to this man. This culture sees this man as subhuman, to be avoided at all costs, and Jesus reaches out and in his mercy he touches him, and then he heals him. That's our first truth. Second one is found in, in verse 42. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Our second truth is this. Jesus' response to the leper is yet another subtle declaration of his godlike power. It is yet another subtle declaration of, God, of, of his godlike power. I, one of the things I love about the Gospel of Mark is because unlike the Gospel of John where it is very explicit about who Jesus is, where we see Thomas making his declaration, my Lord and my God, one of the things that I love about the Gospel of Mark is that virtually in every story there is this subtle underneath the surface. If you dig for it, you will see how Mark is arguing that Jesus is God that Jesus is God in the flesh. So consider three brief ways why the, how this is described in this verse or in this story. To this point in the book of Mark, we have seen Mark make these subtle declarations that Jesus is God, that Jesus heals many people, that Jesus casts out demons. Last week we saw that at the moment when he heals Simon's mother-in-law, that these healings are more than just a neat trick. They're actually this inbreaking of the kingdom. That the eternal kingdom that Jesus comes to bring, that Jesus has come to declare, has come in just a little segment, a little piece of hope, this little glimmer of what Jesus comes to do. In Mark chapter 1, verse 34 and, and verse 39, we see that Jesus heals person after person of diseases, of sicknesses, things that aren't recorded in this book. And to this point, Jesus is someone who is known as a miracle worker, as a, as a powerful teacher. But here we see something different. We see that Jesus approaches a leper, and, and remember, people believe that only God could heal a leper. And Jesus approaches, or this man approaches Jesus, and he says, can you heal me? Will you heal me? And what does Jesus do? He does exactly that. Note the words of, of Jesus at the end of verse 41. 
Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Jesus does not call upon God. He doesn't call upon a higher power as you would expect a great prophet to do. Jesus says simply, you're right. I can heal you if I want, and I want to. So be clean. His power to heal is rooted in his own identity and his own authority. He doesn't need to call on someone else. He doesn't need to rely on someone else to heal this man of leprosy because he is the highest power. It's a subtle glimpse of who he truly is. He is God in the flesh. Second, take a a little bit of creative license with this text. We don't know the, the degree of this leprosy for this man. We don't know how severe it is. But what if this is a man who has lost limbs to leprosy? If that's the case, then Jesus simply speaks and his limbs sprout back into being. They sprout back into existence. The death, the decay that has afflicted this man for so long are gone. Just with Jesus saying a word. Jesus has this power that honestly brings back the the power of God and the creation story in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God creates everything out of nothing. And then what we actually see is that in Genesis 1 verse 2, that there is this chaotic uh, sense to creation and, and there's this, this conflict almost between God and, and his creation and, and God speaks and order and beauty is brought into being. And Jesus does the exact same thing here. He speaks and something beautiful happens. This man is brought into a recreation and we see that Jesus, we get this little glimpse that Jesus is going to be the one who ushers in his new creation. Finally, one final thing, uh, in first century Judaism, it was well believed by uh, Jews that the person who um, has leprosy is actually just the equivalent of being dead. So if you had leprosy, you were treated as though you were dead. You were cut off, you were isolated from your previous life. It was a death sentence. You were a scourge on the earth. And so for Jesus here to heal someone of leprosy is this little foretaste that Jesus is going to raise the dead, that Jesus has the power over death. This is a completely different level of power and authority from Jesus that we have not yet seen before. It is one thing for Jesus to heal those who are sick. It is one thing for Jesus to heal the paralyzed, to heal those with fevers, for him to heal those who have all these different types of ailments, but for him to heal a leper is a foreshadowing of what he's going to do for everyone who enters into his kingdom. He's going to raise them from the dead. Jesus' response to this leper here gives us this little glimpse of his God-like power because he is God. Third truth, verses 43 and 44. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, Show yourself to the priests and offer, your, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, these verses are, are a little bit surprising, not at all what we would probably expect from Jesus uh, at this moment. As we explore them, I hope we see this truth. Our third truth is this. Jesus' charge to this man reveals that he is superior to the priests in the Old Covenant. Let's unpack that statement. Jesus' charge to this man, what Jesus is saying to this man is a, is a declaration 
that Jesus is superior to the priest, that Jesus is superior to the old way of doing things, the old covenant. Now, if you notice throughout this text, as Jesus is working with this man, the focus has not been on being healed, but instead on being clean. The focus is on being clean before God. The leper doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus doesn't say, be healed. He says, be clean. According to the Old Testament, there were certain things that you could do, certain foods you could eat that would make you unclean before God. Now, being unclean before God was not the same thing as being sinful. If we look, a, a primary example of this, a woman's menstrual cycle would make her unclean before God, but it doesn't mean that she was sinful. It was just this statement of, of blemishes or, or things like, like human blood would make you unclean or unable to enter into the presence of a very holy and perfect God. Now, as we've already seen, Old Testament purity laws said that if you touch someone who had leprosy, then you actually become unclean yourself. And so that's why people would avoid lepers. And, so it, and, and it's also why it's so astonishing that Jesus here would touch this man. Not only is this man uh, receiving this extra measure of compassion by Jesus touching him, Jesus is also hinting at something that's going to become clear later on in his ministry. And that is that purity laws in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. They're fulfilled in Jesus. Under the Old Covenant, this idea of impurity or being unclean was contagious. If you were to touch someone who was unclean, then you would become unclean. It didn't go the other way. If you were clean and you touched someone who was unclean, you did not, therefore, make them clean. It was an only a one-way street, and that's the way it's worked for thousands of years. Impurity or uncleanness was contagious and not being clean. And yet here, we see something different. For the first time in history, it is not uncleanness that is contagious. It is instead cleanness. Jesus touches this man, and Jesus doesn't become unclean. This man instead becomes clean. What Jesus is doing here is absolutely remarkable. He's, he's declaring, be clean. And when he does that, and when he touches the man, he is saying that these rules about purity, reflecting God's purity, reflecting God's holiness, all of those things, they're pointing to me. They're pointing to Jesus. And while Jesus supersedes the Old Testament laws of, of, of purity codes and, and regulations, we also see that Jesus cares greatly about what the, what the Old Testament has to say. After all, he tells them, based out of Leviticus 14, I want you to go to the priest and show yourself to the priest because they are the ones that God has ordained to pronounce you as clean. I can heal you. I can make you clean. But it is the priest's responsibility to declare it. And so he sends this man off to the priest. And what he's doing when he says that, uh, if you notice, he tells this man to go to the priest, and by the extension, he tells him to go to the temple to make offerings and, and worship and, and sacrifice. It's a way to say thank you to God for what God has just done for him. But you notice in this text that he tells the man to be silent. He tells the man, do not tell anyone except for the priest. And it's because he's sending him with a specific purpose. Now, these priests, by this time in Jesus' ministry, they would have heard about who Jesus is. They've heard about Jesus' ability to heal, that this is a, a man who teaches with authority, a man who is able to heal with authority. They would know if this man comes to them who was once a leper and says, I have been made clean. You can check me over. You can, you can do exactly what the Old Testament says. I have been made clean, and it was Jesus who healed me. 
the priests would know that they have a decision to make. Only God can heal a man who is unclean. And so Jesus is sending this man of a message, with a message of how much God has done for him, of what Jesus has done for him. First, to fulfill the law, yes, but second, as a test for the priests. How will the priests respond to what Jesus is doing? How will the priests respond to this news of this man who has power over leprosy, that virtually has power over death? And by sending this man to the priests, Jesus is essentially asking the priests, this question. He's, he's saying to them, will you recognize who I am? Will you understand? Will you receive all of the implications of what I've just done? That I am the one that you have waited for? Or are you going to harden your hearts? So Jesus sends this man with a mission to the priest, but more than that, he also makes a declaration by contrasting here what the priesthood can do and what Jesus can do here. The, the priests are able to pronounce a person clean, but they could not make a person clean. They could never make a leper clean. Only God could do that. And so here we are contrasting God uh, and his active power in Jesus, where Jesus just says, be clean, and the man is clean, with the priests, who all they can say is, you are clean. This passive observation. And we're meant to see that Jesus is more powerful, he's more beautiful, than anything that has ever come to this point. Jesus is so, shown to be superior over the old covenant and the priesthood. One final truth found uh, again in these verses. Uh, read verses 43 through 45. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Our fourth truth is this. Jesus desires obedience to his mission of the kingdom, nothing else. He desires obedience to his mission of the kingdom and nothing else. Why is it that Jesus demands silence from this man here? We'll see soon that Jesus is very harsh with this man. Why is it that Jesus demanded silence from the demons last week? Well, it's because Jesus here, he sternly charges this man. It's a very, very harsh phrase of rebuke and warning. It's a sharp contrast to the, the compassion that we saw from Jesus earlier. It's, these words sent him away in these verses. They're actually these words that literally are translated, cast him out of his presence. So this man has been healed by Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and gives him this really, really harsh warning. It says, don't tell anyone and get away from me. And then he sends him to the priests. And we might be wondering, well, what on earth is Jesus doing here? This is not at all the Jesus that I am used to. So what is Jesus doing here when he says all this? Is, it's what we saw last week. Last week, we, we began to see that the reason why Jesus wants silence is because the more people share about what Jesus is able to do, what Jesus has done, and when he's casting out demons, when he's healing the sick, the less people are actually interested in his message, his message of the kingdom. People are more interested in this Jesus who can put on a neat show. This Jesus who can do a cool trick. This Jesus who can bring healing. And they aren't at all concerned about this message of the kingdom. This message that Jesus came to proclaim. Repent. Believe the good news. Have faith. Because Jesus has come. 
And so here, Jesus tells this man to be silent. He demands silence in this situation, not because Jesus is being uh, overly harsh to this man, but because Jesus doesn't want people to fully understand who he is. He doesn't want people to fully understand the, the significance of this power, at least not yet. He doesn't want word about who Jesus is, the implications of what Jesus can do to get out, because if people began to think and realize that Jesus is the true king, they're going to start trying to make him their king. And we see this in other gospels. The crowds try to make Jesus a king, but they don't, make, they don't want Jesus to be a king like God has in plan. They want Jesus to be this conquering king. But Jesus is instead a suffering one. And so this uh, this man is, is demanded, Jesus demands that this man be silent because he doesn't want word to get out that Jesus is just a miracle worker, that Jesus is just an entertainer, but instead he wants people to know that Jesus is a savior who's going to take this man's place. You see, this man was an outcast. He was not able to enter into the city, and we look at the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus died as an outcast outside the city gates. Jesus died to bring salvation to all people. Of course, this man doesn't listen to Jesus' command. He's disobedient, and as much as we can sympathize with this man, I mean, if I were in this man's shoes, I'd probably have done something similar, or at least been tempted to it, but there's no way to get around it. This man is disobedient to Jesus. Jesus commands him to be silent, and the man doesn't do that. Instead of listening to Jesus, he goes and does what he thinks Jesus really needs. Like, you know what? I understand what you told me to do, but, but, but I think that what you really need is more popularity. What you really need is, is more people to hear this. So I'm not going to go tell the priest like you told me. Instead, I'm going to go tell everyone else. And by doing this, Jesus is no longer able to fulfill his mission the way he wanted to. Notice again, verses 38 and 39. Jesus is describing his mission. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. What is Jesus' focus? Jesus wants to go into the synagogue. He wants to go into the town. He wants to go to the exact same place where he started things in Capernaum, into the synagogue where God's people gathered together to hear the word of God. And Jesus wants to start there in each of these towns. And he wants to start there and declare the word of God and more specifically how that word of God is fulfilled in their presence with who Jesus is. But because of this man, Jesus is no longer able to enter into the the towns. Jesus is no longer able to enter into the synagogues where he wants to go. Instead, he has to go out into the wilderness. That's what this word desolate places means. Jesus is instead forced to change how he is going to accomplish his mission. Yes, people are flocking to him in droves. People come to hear him, but it's not for the message of the kingdom. It's not for the message of repentance and faith and salvation. It's instead to see a miracle worker. It's instead to see someone who can heal and do a cool magic trick. You see, Jesus is here. He's met again with the temptation to ignore the cross that we've been looking at for the last couple weeks. We saw, as we looked at Jesus' temptation, that Jesus is tempted primarily with this desire to not go to the cross to find another way to fulfill God's plan, to become a king in a different way. And so Jesus tells this man, please, please don't tell people because I want to focus on my father's mission. And the man doesn't listen. 
And so Jesus is, again, he's tempted to ignore the cross, to find a different way to become king, and to, to ignore this plan that God has had to, to bring salvation to humanity. And so Jesus retreats to the wilderness. He retreats to the place where he met God in the beginning, where he was strengthened by God, where he communed with God. And so as we close this morning, I want us to simply ask, what about us? You see, just like the leper, Jesus has a demand for each and every one of us in response to this text. Jesus has a response to each and every one of us. This text is telling us Jesus comes to bring those who are far off near to God. That's true of the leper, and that's true of each and every one of us here. Jesus comes to bring those who are far off near to God, into God's presence. The leper was the quintessential representation of the man who was far from God, if not spiritually, then at least by the law's standards. There was no chance for him to enter into God's presence, and he was isolated from the very ability to fellowship with the congregation of God. So what does this text ask us? Two things. First, do you believe that Jesus is the one who brings salvation for outcasts like us? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who died for outcasts just like you and me? This is the same question in one sense that Jesus has for the priest when he wants to send this man to the priest. Would the priest be willing to see who Jesus is? Would the priests have hard hearts or soft hearts, receptive to the message of the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring those who are far off near to God? What's more, do you see yourself, that you were an outcast or you are an outcast, that you were unable to enter the presence of God without someone instead taking your place? This text, first and foremost, just asks us for a response for that question, to recognize that Jesus comes to bring salvation for outcasts like you and me. And second, the question is, will we be obedient to the mission of Jesus? Will we be obedient to his commands? Or will we be like the leper? You see this man, uh, Jesus' mission was actually hindered by this man because he, he did what he thought best. He did what he thought Jesus wanted and not what Jesus commanded instead. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can oftentimes do the same. We can think that we know better than God. We can completely forget the simplicity of what he has commanded us in his word. There's a fascinating contrast here. If you look at the language of verse 45, verse 45, it tells us that the, this man, uh, he goes out and he begins talking freely about it. And this word talking freely is, is one word in Greek, and it's used virtually exclusively in the New Testament to refer to the proclamation of the gospel. So here's a man who has been commanded to be silent, and instead he goes out and he preaches, essentially. He begins to preach. And yet he's not preaching the gospel. He's preaching half a gospel. He's not preaching the message of the kingdom. He's not preaching that Jesus comes to bring salvation. Instead he's just saying, hey, you know what? Here's a cool miracle worker. He's preaching half a gospel when he's been commanded to be silent. What about us? See, the reality is God has the same, or as the opposite command for us. We've not been commanded to be silent. We've been commanded to speak, to proclaim the gospel. And not just a half gospel like this man was, but the full gospel. And so this text asks us, are we going to be obedient to what Jesus commands of us? This command to, to proclaim 
the gospel for us who, who live on this side of the resurrection, who have now the, the fuller understanding of what, what Jesus came to do, are we going to be obedient? Or are we going to do what we think is best? You see, Jesus comes to bring those who are far off near to God. Are you willing to be obedient in your part of proclaiming that message? Let's pray. Jesus, we do ask that you would be with us, that you would help us, and God, that you would be honored in us. Help us to be faithful to your commands, even when they may not make sense to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue worship, uh, we will respond uh, through um, a couple different ways. We'll